when you're reading a poem, often they're reduced to statements as though they were position papers. And they are not position papers, they're a transcript. From the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Harvard University, this is Colloquy, marking the school's 150th anniversary this year by bringing you conversations with thought leaders from the GSAS alumni and student community. I'm Paul Massari. I first came under Helen Vendler's spell in October 2009 when I flipped on the car radio and listened to her unpack the opening lines from Wallace Stevens' poem, Sunday Morning. Sifting through words that had seemed to me atmospheric, coffee and oranges, or puzzling, what is a penmoir anyway? Vendler uncovered meditations on nature, God, propriety, loneliness, the seasons, the American landscape, and the poems of John Keats. If the universe did not stutter, in the playwright August Wilson's words, it at least paused. Not bad for a Saturday morning trip to the Liberty Tree Mall. Years later, it is with great pleasure that I embark on a conversation with a person the New Republic calls the best poetry reviewer in America about the art of verse and why both the poetic form and its great works have enduring value in the era of the social media-induced seven-second attention span. Helen Vendler is Harvard's Arthur Kingsley Porter University Professor Emerita. Her books include The Ocean, the Bird, and the Scholar, Essays on Poets and Poetry, Dickinson, Selected Poems and Commentaries, Our Secret Discipline, Yeats and the Lyric Form, Coming of Age as a Poet, Milton, Keats, Eliot, Plath, and The Art of Shakespeare's Sonnets. Among her honors are fellowships from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Academy of Berlin, Yado, the University of Michigan Institute for the Humanities, and many, many others. From 2007 to 2010, Wendler was Vice President of Literature for the American Academy of Arts and Letters. She got her Ph.D. from GSAS in 1960. Dr. Helen Wendler, welcome to Colloquy. Thank you very much. My friend Theo Theo Harris uh, teaches in the Department of Comparative Literature at Harvard. And uh, a few weeks ago, he was actually walking me through some poems. And as he introduced the poems and introduced the form, he mentioned that the creed of the Greek Orthodox Church literally refers to God as poet of heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that religious reference reveals to us about the ways that poetry differs from other uses of language and other literary forms. The use of the word about God, that he's a maker of heaven and earth, is the same Greek root as you said uh, for poetry. And poetry is simply something made. It has to have been conceived of, organized, voiced, and then tinkered with until it clicks into shape. Poetry is a dynamic form. 
it ends often very differently from where it began, as you know, from George Herbert, you know, at the end of the caller after he's been railing at God. And finally, he hears the voice saying, child. And I replied, my Lord. And so from being extremely angry at God, you know, I struck the board and cried, no more. I will abroad. And so when you're reading a poem, often they're reduced to statements as though they were position papers. And they are not position papers. They're a transcript. And Eliot said the best thing about it as though, um, in Prufrock, he said as if the nerves were thrown in patterns on a screen by a magic lantern. So that's what seemed to be a poem. It's sort of an EKG. I mean, it keeps doing things on a screen where you can follow it. Um, but you'd be very much mistaken if you didn't see almost every word as a progression of the mind thinking. And it's the private mind because it's not a dialogue. It's, um, it's not directed primarily at the reader in the first instance trying to make something that will click. And eventually you have to think of the reader and say, would anybody understand this? Or is this too peculiar a word when Eliot says philoprotogenitive or whatever it is? Um, in uh, Mr. Eliot's Sunday morning service, he's using a word that nobody knows. And you have to take thought, if you're a poet, to do something like that. It's a deliberate insult, in a way, to the reader. And yet, there's such a temptation, once in a while at least, for every poet, to put the contents of this mental procedure on paper, no matter how hard it is, if it reflects the contour that at that moment your mind is doing. It's a mimetic act, and it's tracking a living process. So is poetry, in terms of literary forms, the most direct way of experiencing another consciousness? For me, it's the most direct way. For other people who want... You know, when people who don't read poetry look at it, they say, where are the characters? Where is the plot? Where is the action? Where is the scene? Where is the setting? Where is the, is it comedy or tragedy? And that requires social input. I mean, novels and plays, with novels being essentially a boxing match. I'm sorry, with plays, I meant being a boxing match. Um, well, you have to have at least the protagonist to the antagonist, and something has to be going on between them. And with novels, you have that obligation to, unless you're Beckett, to set an entire scene so that depending on how interested you are in the social world, um, you would like drama or novels better and think of them as a better portrayal of human life. But I like the inward life better than the social life. I'm interested in what happens more in reflection or meditation or thinking or arguing with yourself or almost when Matthew Arnold said that poetry is the dialogue of the mind with itself. There is conflict, there is drama, and the people on the stage are the words, and they come in and they make a little bow, and it's, it's suddenly doing archaic language, or it's suddenly doing technical language, or a whole new register comes in, it's doing hysterical language, or it's doing melancholy language, and to watch each word be an actor on the stage is for me thrilling because you never know what they're going to say. 
You talked about just um, a little bit ago about poetry as an expression of the private mind. But that made me think about the epic form, particularly, you know, in Greece and in Rome, Mm -hmm. where there's also this very public function to it. Um, Do you have any thoughts about how those are balanced and how that changes as poetry moves through the ages? Well, um, Northrop Fry used to reflect. It was a term he invented, and I liked it. I listened to him talk here for a year when he was a visiting professor, and he was doing the anatomy of criticism out loud on stage, which was thrilling. It was all new, new to me. And he talks about the radical of presentation. Is this thing staying to you, I'm telling you a story? Or is it saying, I'm meditating? Or is it saying, I'm quarreling with somebody? And that present, the mode of presentation governs. So all narrative poetry is governed by, the, you might say, the acts of narrative. It has words, but if the story weren't there, the words wouldn't be there either. So that the, when something is narrative, it means it's a social form. It means it has lots of evolution, development, action, plots. And so you have to think of it first and foremost as a narrative. The same with a play. First and foremost, it's people exchanging language. And I, as I say, I, they didn't feel natural to me, those forms. I used to look at novels and say, why do people read these? And because there's so much in the way of extrinsic detail what people were wearing or who was plotting against whom or something. And I didn't want to know that. I wanted to know what they were thinking. And there wasn't enough in a novel, except for autobiographical novels, which, of course, I like, and memoirs and letters, anything where the personal thinking process is going on. Um... So then, I mean, as everybody says, what you had was a lot of anonymity in the lyric, if you think of Christmas carols and so on. And then when it got a a signature, you might say, when an author's name began to be attached to it and a whole corpus of work could be assembled for that author, it was, and you could put out collected poems of some Shakespeare's sonnets. It's such a wretched little book. I don't know if you've ever seen it. We have one of the 15 copies in the world here. And there are four sonnets when you open the book, two on each page. They're cramped. The book is very small. There's hardly any margins. It has little numbers in front of each sonnet. So you even have four little title numbers on each open uh, double page. And to think that they could be called so long ago in 1609 Shakespeare's sonnets. I mean, a particular form, a particular author, a particular audience, because it was a book being published and sold. Um, it is, I don't know, when it goes on beyond the author function, as we would say, into everything down to the breaking of form that happens. It happens all the time, but in different ways. Um, 
Yeats sometimes breaks form, for instance, by having a poem in quatrains rhyming A, B, A, B. And then it keeps going on down the page, A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B. And then suddenly the last stanza has A, B, A. And there's a missing line. And he did that to his own epitaph. When he wrote it first, it was a quatrain. And he imagines the old form of epitaph where you're going along on a horse and then you stop and contemplate the gravestone of the person who has died. And then you say, um, may the earth lie lightly on him. And then you continue your journey. And so that's what Yeats was imagining on his grave for his own epitaph. And in its final form, it is on his grave. It's in uh, Sligo, um, in Drumcliff Churchyard. But it originally mimicked the action of the horseman going by. And it said, draw rain, the reins of the horses, of the horse, sorry. Draw rain, draw breath, pause. Cast a cold eye on life, on death. Horseman, pass by. So that was this nice little quatrain, rhyming quatrain. And he thought, no, that's too inert a beginning. Draw rain, draw breath. And the poem, an epitaph, doesn't really need another person in it, the horseman sort of. To start with the horseman, not with the dead person, and the gravestone seemed an inert way, I guess, to him, and not shocking enough for analogy. So... It now is simply for three lines, cast a cold eye on life, on death. And then horsemen pass by. You could be addressing somebody else in the street when you say horsemen pass by, and it's not yourself on the horse, which is not important for the allergy about somebody else. Who cares whether you're on a horse or not? And so those three lines are engraved on his slate gravestone, um, as he wished, so that's a brilliant little example. A cold eye on life, on death, horsemen pass by. So is Yeats saying, you know, have a, an attitude of equanimity? or? Well, cold is worse than equanimity. Yeah. What, what a lyric poem requires, at least, is that you have to at some point, step out of your thinking process and think of it as a made thing, not simply as a transcript of your thoughts, like an EKG, in which case you could just write anything, as people sometimes do, and as people thought Allen Ginsberg was doing, but he wasn't. Um, <clears throat> at least in his great poems, he wasn't. He has some filler towards the end of his life, but uh, he was an, less appreciated than he should be that some of the greatest poets of the 20th century come, came from him. But it's just that the cold eye is the eye of the craftsman or the couturier or whoever is making the thing. Shall I do a piping here or shall I fell that seam or shall I dye it or not? And So the cold eye is the eye of estimation, judgment, and evaluation. And you're not going to be a good artist unless you can cast a cold eye on life and on death. And when the life is finished, as it is, the, as the gravestone tells you, when you're in front of it, I think he's thinking, too, of some of the beautiful 
um, and so moving. A Greek steelies where people are putting a hand on the shoulder of the person who's going to leave and go to the underworld. It's often a husband and a wife. And just the single gesture of affection is the thing that's before saying goodbye, is the thing that you can't bear when you look at those things. But he's thinking, the sculptor was not thinking about how sad, though, that couple must have been to part. I mean, he had to think, do I sit her down? Do I stand him up? I mean, those things. So that's the cold eye. Every time I hear you quote a line of poetry, it feels deeply enchanting to me. And it makes me wonder if, um, as as religion, particularly institutional religion, sort of fades more and more over time, although not necessarily the religious impulse or the spiritual impulse, if you experience or understand poetry as something that has that ability to enchant our lives? Well, only for some people. <laughs> My baby brother was forbidden to be one of the three kings in the Christmas pageant. I was forbidden to sing. He was allowed to be in it. But his monotone would drag the other two kings down. And so he, he could have a, a crown and a you know box of frankincense or something, but he was not allowed to sing. And if you have a monotone in the family, it's like having somebody who's dyslexic or something. I mean, dyslexic people have a hard time with language, and, and it's an obstacle. So that I do think one is born, of course the musicians are born musical, or they could never do what they do. I mean, you have only to see a page of a score to be astonished. And uh, it's not learnable in its most complex forms. I mean, it has to have a creative component. Even simple songs have a very creative component in them somewhere, or they wouldn't last. Um, and I think that's why to hear a living voice is important to me. I mean, it's another voice talking to me, you might say, across the page. And it's an interesting voice to listen to. So if you have that response to language, which I always have had, a lesser one to music, but you need some kind of ear to read poetry with any affection, I think you have to have the groundwork for any given art before it becomes, if not a sacred space to you, at least an enchanting space. I wonder what sense you make of this kind of digital culture we're in. You know, some people would call it a culture of distraction. Because I've always experienced poems as things that really require my attention, you know? Mm -hmm. They require me to be present, which is probably why I I can't read very long poems because they're a little too rich mm -hmm. for me for too long a time. Um, but, I mean, have you seen attention spans change? Have we become less able to be with a poem? Well, 
of course, the visual has replaced the linguistic in our culture. And kids used to grow up reading books. Now they grow up watching screens. It's a different education. And it's not an education in anything linguistic from diagramming sentences up to etymology. And they don't know the roots of words because they don't have any other language and they don't have to study Latin anymore. Everybody had three years of Latin when I was growing up. Um, in any standard high school, that was one of the components. And they, it helps you know what words mean when you know the roots of them. And now the roots have vanished because people aren't seeing the words as shapes on a page. They're just hearing the words. And they learn language from television. I mean, they learn their own language from television so that they speak in televisionese. Um, and then they turn it into words. I remember the first time I saw a child saying, well, this wasn't difficult per se, P-U-R-S-A-Y. Oh, I thought... <laughs> didn't occur to me that anyone could think what the person was saying was spelled P-U-R-S-A-Y. The, the student knew what it meant, but didn't know what language it was written in, you might say. And or the first time I saw segue used as a written verb, it's just, you realize how fast language does change and how fast one kind of culture replaces another. I'm sorry that people are losing the entire corpus of English poetry. I'm sorry they're losing the corpus of the Bible because all the allusions just disappear from the table and they have no idea what, what they're reading, essentially, because they're not picking up the ping-pong. I mean, on the face of it, poetry makes demands of us that are kind of opposed to a digital and a visual age. And, and yet, I wonder if one of the ways in which poetry has enduring value is in its ability to really make us pay attention. Well, that's the point of amassing things you remember. Um, in any, in science as well as in art, as well as a you go to a museum to pay attention to. But I wasn't a visual person, so although I was taken to the Museum of Fine Arts, largely to the mummies by my parents, I didn't know what you were supposed to do with it or do with the painting. And then one day, as I've said in public, I think before, I was very unhappy about a breakup with a boy I was in love with in graduate school and just fled the campus and went to the Museum of Fine Arts. And I was suddenly made happy, and I thought, that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to make me happy. And I realized it had something in common with poetry, which always made me happy, and with reading, which always made me happy. And suddenly it just opened up in the way I had always known that music was there to make you happy, so that was okay. But I didn't, I felt so inept as a processor, you might say, of visual arts, that it wasn't until I could sort of think it's all right to be happy and stand in front of them, and then eventually you begin to get interested and you read books and you get more of that equipment than you had had when you were just uncomfortable. 
From the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Harvard University, this has been Colloquy. This podcast is an extension of the GSAS magazine of the same name. You can find a transcript of the show, as well as past episodes, at the new GSAS website, gsas.harvard.edu slash colloquy hyphen podcast. If you enjoyed this interview, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher so that others can find it as well. And be sure to visit the 150th anniversary page on the school's website, gsas.harvard.edu slash 150, for more stories of inquiry, innovation, and impact. I'm Paul Massari. See you next time.